You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this episode comes to you live from the secret Welsh festival that we're not allowed to name. Uh, This is the absolutely brilliant Mark Watson. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. Um, I, I honestly, having just said that, I went. I was about to go. I don't think that's working. <laughs> so, so used to mine to doing that. Um, Mark, thank you for coming. Oh, that's all right. I'm going to spend the rest of this facing you in a slightly unnerving. Kind yeah, of way. the whole layout of the room is sort of odd as well, isn't it? Sort of uh, gladiatorial. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> so, well, we could do it naked in the middle if you want. Well, maybe. Well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you yeah, maybe, uh... maybe we'll close like that. Um, so let's start with talking about your show last night. So you did uh, a, a, a kind of effectively a preview of a show in front of about 250 people. <clears throat> yeah, it was. It was. I mean, quite a lot of people at the festival do do. Um, uh, a show that's labelled work in progress. For me, it was it, it was literally the first stab at a new show, although I'd, I'd tried bits of it before. Um, but because of the public's enthusiasm for this festival, I ended up with a, a bigger crowd for essentially a warm-up show than I'd normally get for an actual show. Which um, <laughs> So was in the, I, I began the... Uh, it, it sounds like a quite an uncharitable thing to do, but I began by saying, essentially, I wish most of you weren't here. Because uh, I... <laughs> There were there were more people than I. I mean, because the, the the idea of a work in progress show is kind of that you, you know, you sort of stumble around finding the comedy um, in a haphazard way in front of maybe this many people. This would be a perfect setup for a work in progress, and that was sort of how I imagined it when I signed up for it. It was only on the day that I realised um, sort of the grandeur of this. It did mean that I had to sort of step up, and in a way, it's good to be challenged in that way. It's just that um, when there's three hundred people. And it's a proper venue. As soon as it looks like a proper comedy show, basically, you start thinking people's expectations are already higher than I can possibly uh, live up to. And were you able to stick to your guns and not fall back on stuff that you knew would work? I mean, obviously, there's bigger pressure there. You don't want to turn off 250 fans in Mac by risking anything. The, the last thing I want to do is lose the Mac crowd. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, it was in a way, it was a bit of both. I think I, I, I'd say that I probably I didn't fall back on any kind of um, old bits, or there was no actual cheating. But I probably did take slightly fewer risks than if I'd been doing it in this kind of um, informal setting. Uh, the, the funny thing about a, a 
kind of previous... Also, it's not even a work in progress towards a show for this Edinburgh, which is what most people are doing here. I'm not even... I, I'm still doing it in Edinburgh as a work in progress. So yesterday's show was the first step on a path which is at least a year long. So it really ought to have been the most kind of shabby show that I could possibly ever do. As it was, there's something about being in front of that many people and in a, it's the tabernacle. It was a really beautiful setting. So I probably did... I mean, I didn't... I don't think I kind of used too many um, safety blankets, but I did... No, what's the phrase? Safety nets? I don't think safety blanket is a thing, is it? <laughs> generally, they don't, they don't catch people in blankets when they're uh, walking on tightropes. Um, but I probably did... If it had been a more informal setting, I, there was a bunch of stuff on that uh, notepad in front of me that w- weren't even at the level of jokes, that were purely just subjects. And if it had been a setting like this, I would have... Uh, gone out on a limb and just try to kind of weave those into jokes. As it was, I, I sort of... Um, I think when you go into a kind of a preview show, a work in progress, you have a handful of jokes that you know works. you have tried them at some point before. Then there are things that you are confident will be funny, but you're not sure. And that was the level I got to yesterday. Whereas in a genuine work in progress, there, there's another... Uh, layer of jokes which aren't even jokes yet we've just got one word like bats on a page and you speak for 10 minutes about bats and at the end you have to say well i'll never speak about bats again (laughs) that is the sort of liberty you'll take in front of 50 people which i couldn't really take last night you it's funny that you i something really struck me last night watching that show and it was but it was really interesting to see you do something that was kind of like half work elements stories you could go i can see that this is there that'll that'll be part of the show that'll work something that really struck me was your ability to just keep talking until something funny happens and the gap being very, very brief. Like, you, it seemed to me like you weren't ever really in trouble. And I, I struggle to imagine seeing you take a risk on something like Bats and not be able to get something funny out of it. Uh, well, I, I've yet to find the funny in Bats. Yeah. <laughs> Considering what funny eyes they've got and all this business with their radars. I, I don't know. Yeah, the thing is... You, you, um, what is it? But there's something funny. There's something odd about bats, isn't there? They, they can't see, but they can hear incredibly. There's something. There's something about bats. I'll tell you. This, you you what, Google bats, you'll find something funny. What, what you're um, doing now is exactly what I mean. Like, you're taking a thing well, whereby there is no joke and you're managing to end the sentence because of your relationship with us. You've got this kind of perpetual ability to simply explain the fact that nothing's funny in a way that's funny. I think I engender a certain goodwill or at least sympathy in an audience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We, uh, because I, I think people can see that even before I started talking about specific aspects of my sort of vulnerability on stage, I think people um, have always been able to see that I'm... There are some comedians that make it look very easy. I've always been a comedian that consciously makes it look quite hard. Like, I, I'm <laughs> always very open with the crowd about how I feel things are going. Um, I, I, so in a sense, I kind of... I do remove some of the obstacles between uh, the comedian and the audience by being open about that. You know, I'm always basically saying, look, most of you think you can't do this. I also sort of think I can't, but I am doing it, so we've basically got to crack on with this. That is, um, that is the persona that I put in front of the audience, and that is genuinely how I feel as well. And on the one hand, that probably does mean, as you say, that in a work-in-progress situation, you get more support from an audience than um, you might get if you were... If you're, if you're these comedians that... Um, take a sort of uh, either moral or psychological high standpoint and talk down to a crowd, then I think you have a problem trying new material out because it's harder to make yourself vulnerable like that. But the flip side is, of course, you've, you've got to be hard on yourself. And I've done work-in-progress shows, kind of um, trial shows, 
that have gone very well purely because the audience is nice and warm and they respond to some sort of need in me. But it doesn't mean the stuff is funny. It just means they want you to not kill yourself. So you know, it, it, you, you've always... Like last night when, when you'd say very well by, by most standards, but that doesn't mean that I've got a very good show. It just means that I've got the ability to go in front of a preview crowd and say, look, guys, help me out here. What's difficult for someone like me is making it into an actual cast-iron good show that will work without all of those caveats. Mm. So it's not that I'm that good at always being funny it's just that i'm really good at making people think i hope this is funny i'll help him and they're, they're you know and you can do that for six months of a work in progress but there comes a point where you're in front of a real audience that's paid real money and you, ju- you have to actually be funny yeah when you when you say that there's there's certain things that people um that you're revealing that you're there's a vulnerability that you're revealing that's honest are there elements to your personality that you're actively concealing in, in your relationship with a crowd. Like a certain... Like that confidence, for example. We don't see what presumably in you is the confidence after thousands upon thousands of gigs that you will be able to turn it round. Do, do you feel like you're concealing that confidence when you reveal the insecurity? I, yeah, I genuinely don't really have that much confidence to draw on. It's true that as a... Um, as somebody that's done... Yeah, it will be about three or four thousand gigs, probably. You, you do have a kind of built-in um, uh, set of sensors and tricks, and uh, you, you sort of you have a kind of innate. Well, it's not innate; it's learned. You have a, you uh, you have things to fall back on that you probably do go on stage on on one psychological level, thinking I can probably make this work. I can, but it, I think it's a bit like um, being a sports person. It, however good you are. You, you, you go out into the match thinking, well, I know how to play the game, I know what I'll do if this happens, this happens, this happens, but the, there's never any uh, certainty that you'll win. And I think what, celebra- uh, what separates at the absolute top-level people in sport from the kind of good but not great is that they have some sort of ability to think, I will win, I will nail this. And some comedians are also like that. Some comedians are, are able to switch off what you'd regard as the human faculty for vulnerability and just think, this will go well, it will go well. Um, I don't really have that, and I don't think most people have that. So I, I, there's no... There's no um, I never, I'm not concealing any kind of extra superpowers that I have, except in the sense that all comedians are a bit better than they a- appear to be, because mostly when a comedian appears to be in trouble, they, they've got... There are always more places to go, more get-outs than, than there appear to be to the general public because there are tricks of the trade that you learn. But I don't think you ever feel secure on stage. I, there are people that certainly do. Someone like Stuart Lee... Well, there's, there are dozens of comedians that are able to go out there and whether it's going well or not, their, their basic mindset is, I'm pretty good. I don't have that and I don't think... I think and I'm not, saying, I'm not marking myself out as being particularly frail either. I think a lot of comedians don't have that. So even if a gig is going really well... I don't think you're ever more than about 30 seconds away from thinking something's about to go wrong here. Are you, I mean, someone, are you someone who approaches the writing of a new hour with a sense of fear and a sense of, oh, God, I've got to come up with another hour? Or, are you, or, or a tour show or however long the, the duration is? Or are you someone that goes, right, I'm going to start writing now and something will come? I used to approach it with more fear because I used to do it every year, a new Edinburgh show every year that would become a tour show every year. And for five or six years, I was in that pattern. Um, and, and I think probably most comics have had this experience. There comes a point, maybe about four years into that process, where you think, nothing much else to say here. I, um, no, funny things can't happen to me at the rate I need to get there. Uh, 
And um, that is generally a sign that it's time to take a year away from Edinburgh. These days I'll do a, uh, a year um, in Edinburgh and on tour and then have kind of a, a year off when one, this is one of these. So I'll, I'll allow myself basically twice as much time as I used to to generate a new show, which means that I don't now feel much pressure because um, I can allow the, the kind of themes and uh, preoccupations of the show to take shape fairly naturally if you if you only have a year to do it and expect the thing with um the way the comedy year is kind of configured is that if you do uh, say if you if you began the show here as quite a lot of people are then you took it to edinburgh then you toured with it until say through the autumn january february you might then go to australia suddenly it's april or may and edinburgh comes again in august it's just not really enough time but there's only so many hilarious misunderstandings that can occur and um and also your basic mindset has only got so many different uh, angles to... You know, it's fine for your first two or three shows. If you're six or seven shows in, like me, you probably won't have a new concept for a show every year. Some people don't mind about that because they just literally do an hour of stand-up every year. But I'm very different from some people in that regard. There definitely are comics that do approach it by thinking, I need an hour of stand-up, I'll sit and write an hour of stand-up. And I've never been able to do that. I've always pieced shows together by coming up with things over an exhaustive number of shows. The only way I can generate material is to do gigs and see what works. Whereas there are people that... Like, I never write anything down at all other than the the absolute minimum of notes. And I'm astonished and envious that some comedians can, like, go into a writing room and come out with with a block of material and then try out. For me, it's it's hundreds of disparate gigs, uh, gags, which gradually kind of coalesce into a show. And you're... I I think... One of the tropes of your stand-up is that you... Like you said, I mean, you, you referred to it there a couple of times. I think you referred to it on stage last night as well as wandering around the world waiting for funny things to happen. Your, one of the tropes of your stand-ups is kind of, you know, an, an unusual thing happened, like I was mugged or I lost my passport or I wasn't sure about a thing. They're kind of story-driven. Yeah, and there's a finite number of those that can happen to you, um, especially if... Lovely to hear the word trope, by the way. I... Um, <laughs> It's been a long... I'd say it, not since my English degree have I heard that. Um, you wait, mate. We'll, we'll start unpacking stuff in about oh, five minutes. Oh, we can't be that far away from dialectic. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I'm trying to be less like that. My, my early stand-up was pretty much all uh, based upon, yeah, the reportage of vaguely funny incidents, which I would then exaggerate and stuff. And it still is to some extent. But I now try and have more courage about... like. Last night's show is based on this passport incident, but I, I, out of that I tried to get kind of a um, bunch of subjects to talk about, which, which um, sort of... It's just too loud to ignore completely. But um, <laughs> I think we both felt we could I get was, away I with that for a bit. Sure yeah. I know who's sitting over there, and I was hoping it was going to be either Josh or Tim Key, who were as well yeah. and they're both just totally stony-faced. Not me, mate. Yeah, but if that was your phone, you would be stony-faced, wouldn't you? Like, yeah. that's, that's, it's basically a poker game now. Um, <laughs> The, um, so, what you want to watch for is someone putting the phone off. If they've not managed to do that surreptitiously, there's a danger this could happen again. And uh, <laughs> on the second ring, it does tend to get interesting, I find. So, yeah, I, I tend to... These days, I try and actually think, what do I want to talk about, and go for that, rather than uh, reacting to stuff which happens. Because there's only so many times you can be mugged or want to be mugged, really. Yes. I, uh, the, the mugging, which... Um, my second show was all about a mugging, and it, it, in terms of 
like when you balance the short-term expense of the mugging, both financial and uh, psychological, against what I got out of it, uh, I would be—I'd be mugged every week if I could always get a shot out of it. Because um, <laughs> out of that one mugging came a ten-minute story, which became a centerpiece of my live set, and a whole show came out of that. And it's one of the most successful bits I've ever had. And I only lost about twenty quid. There was a knife in my face, but I mean, most comedians I know would have would basically be done by a crossbow if they got that much material out of it. <laughs> so, um, but you... yes, I suppose the point is, if you want to be any sort of a decent comedian. You, you can't just go through your life thinking, will a funny thing happen on the tube today? At some point, you have to find the courage uh, to dig for subjects that you're actually interested in and find ways to approach them. And that's what I'm trying to do after seven shows. <laughs> St- staying with the stories for the moment, have you always, when you said to exaggerate them for comic effect, would you, uh, do you always need to retain an element of truth? Is that important to you? I would have to, yeah. I've seen people tell stories on stage and you, you instinctively know none of this is true at all. I don't think I could quite do that. I'm not sure I could sell a story that was pure fiction. Generally, and I think this is probably similar for most comics as well, I'll generally start with something which does happen and then just take it in a direction that's more entertaining than, than reality um, or tell it exactly as it did happen but just uh, try and find some comedy in the way of describing it. And, um, and what kind of... When you say try and find some comedy in that way, what sort of tactics are you using? Are you trying to... Like, um, people talk a lot about jeopardy, you know, about kind of... Are you trying to make things more important in order to find the jokes? Are I you think, trying to find what's really going on in the story? Are you trying to unearth a truth in it? What, what's, what's your angle? Well, I think, and again, this is probably true of quite a lot of comedians, when stuff does happen which has a funny... Uh, potential funny side in real life I generally don't find the funny side at the time Uh, so for example I've got this joke I had a joke in the past uh, show about being ID'd in Marks and Spencer's and um, the person would say have you got any proof that you're over 18 and I said well yeah I'm I'm in Marks and Spencer (laughs) and um, oh I tell you it's bloody funny at the time Uh, um, (laughs) and that was a real staple of the last show that was a joke that always um, and so that did happen, but but I didn't, of course, have that rejoined at the time. What happened was the bloke said, have you got any proof that you're over 18? And I frustratedly thought, clearly I'm over 18, I'm in Marks and Spencer's, my life obviously is, is going down a path which I'm not comfortable with but not able to resist. I, um, I, I'm uh, sliding inexorably into sort of middle age, I have children. All these things were sort of running depressingly through my head. It was only when I got home and thought, I'll tell you what would have been funny if I said that. And... Um, <laughs> So I think a lot of a lot of the ways that I uh, spin comedy out of the stuff of life is to tell the story as I would like it to have been played out, or, or say the thing that I would have liked to. Which again, most people are familiar with the, that feeling of like, oh, I wish I'd said this. I wish the story ended like that. As a comedian, you you do get to live those scenarios, but I can only really use them as comedy if they are reasonably close to the truth. As I say, I've, you'll sometimes see someone tell a story that's just 100% bogus a way you can often tell is they'll say I was in Brixton and someone said this to me but then you see them somewhere else like you see them in Australia and they say oh, I was in Sydney the other day and this happened and you think this is remarkably often this incident that occurred <laughs> in your life is. and th- then you kind of know that it didn't happen at all because if they're able to lie that fundamentally that it probably didn't um, happen I'm never able to go more than a couple of degrees away from the truth at least as a premise because otherwise you are just kind of you're just sort of lying and um I think it's got to be attached enough to real life uh, in order for me to sort of believe in the integrity of it, I think. Yeah. And are there... Are there I, I felt last night that there were more jokes, there were more punchlines at, at the very ends of stories, more kind of story resolutions, which were... 
what am I trying to say? That they were... They... Shit. <laughs> no, uh. not at all. <laughs> that they were based not on the event that happened resolving in a funny way, but the laugh came from the description, the language you were using. Do you see what I mean? Do you see the yeah. difference between something like, you know, the person didn't fall down the hole at the end of the joke, but they avoided it and you described it in such a way that that's where the laugh is. Again, you pretty much have to evolve those skills because people fall down holes disappointingly seldom, I think. <laughs> I just... If you wait for a funny story to happen in front of you, you're going to be waiting a long time. Or, well, this is the thing. There's comedy in pretty much everything that happens. Like, the, 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 uh, every tube journey has some sort of potentially amusing situation in it. Um, but you do have to... In the end, you're mostly relying on your own interpretation of it to actually mine it for comedy, I think. And I'm increasingly aware of that as well, because there are just more observational comics than there ever have been. Mm. When I was starting... If I told... It was just not that long ago. It's in, I've been doing it for, I suppose, 12 years. But even then, if you told a story about the... Um, going on the underground, there's a crazy person next to you, the, it was still relatively new ground, at least mm. by the... Today, there's almost no awkward situation that uh, somebody like me, a person with a relatively comfortable life, a white, uh, well-educated... Any situation that I delve into for humour will have been covered and will be being covered simultaneously by dozens of people. So it's now more important to find your own voice, your own way of phrasing things, I think, because the actual pool of material or drawing on is being shared by an enormous number of people. So this is Mark. We had a wonderful show together. What an interesting man. What an interesting conversation. Um, I think he is, uh, well, as you'll hear, we get we get right into the, I mean, as, as you've already heard, he's uh, very... Sort of stricken is maybe the word with with anxiety and sort of issues of self belief as are we all. But I think Mark articulates them uh, better than most, and certainly articulates them on stage better than most. His show, his work in progress show, the previous night, absolutely blew me away. He's so so naturally funny, but like Nina Conti in last week's episode, uh, episode one hundred and nineteen. There is something still, isn't there, in, in people who are unquestionably good and lauded and professional and, and making a decent living, who still have the ghosts in them, who still have the, the, the dark voices going, oh, you're not worth it, you shouldn't be doing this. It, it's crazy and constantly fascinating to me. Um, so more from Mark in, in just a second. And we're do going to do listen right to the end. We're going to get uh, stuck into Mark's reaction to uh, some of Stuart Lee's material being about him. Many of you in the UK will know that um, in the last few years, uh, brilliant comedian Stuart Lee has started to address uh, other comedians and their habits and their marketing and advertising and so forth, uh, not to mention their material, um, in his material on stage. And I've been wanting to talk to someone about what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that from someone um, that they presumably were a fan of or are still a fan of or were at some stage, uh, but certainly grew up being very impressed by and very inspired by. Um, and we get stuck into that uh, shortly. So uh, more from Mark in just a moment. Um, I had a couple of very interesting emails I wanted to mention um, and, and a little plug as well I, I'll do the plug while I remember Bob Slayer um, he of Heroes of Fringe is doing a new venture at Edinburgh this year constantly innovative Bob Slayer I have to say uh, no matter your feelings on a man who may well have drunkenly jumped onto you at a comedy festival at some point um, you cannot fault Bob's ingenuity and innovation um, he is doing a, a he's got a double decker bus Christ I know I mean this ends in disaster surely he's driving off a cliff now I'm sure he'll be fine um, uh, it's called the Blunderbuss which I don't like the spelling of it but it did occur to me he's done it 
deliberately so that it's uniquely Googleable, and it's paid off. It's B L U N D A Blunder Bus B U S B L U N D A B U S. The Blunder Bus is Bob's latest Edinburgh venture. Um, it's a venue. It's going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe this year, and you can go to blunderbus.com. Uh, and you can support it on Kickstarter and in numerous other ways as well. So I, I mentioned to Bob I'd mentioned that. I think he's uh, a good egg that needs things mentioned. Um, so uh, so there's that. Now, emails. I had an email from a, a listener called Matt Whitby who, uh, who, who opens uh, vividly enough. I never laugh at jokes. So laughter interests me, he said. That's an interesting opening gambit. Um, would you say non-comedians laugh at jokes in a different way to comedians... Do comedians essentially laugh at the technical ability of the joke rather than its inherent funniness? Now, I I know my opinion on that. I'm interested to hear your opinions. I do think comedians laugh uh, in a different way to comedians or maybe at a different time or maybe we appreciate things. Maybe it's true of comedy fans rather than comedians. Maybe if you've got 10,000 hours of watching comedy under your belt, maybe you're going to recognise the same patterns and tropes and rhythms that, uh, that a comedian would. Maybe there is some extra magical ability that gigging yourself gives you to read and interpret other people's jokes. Certainly, Pat Oswalt in his uh, his brilliant uh, autobiography, which is called something about silver screen. I'll find out for you shortly. Um, but uh, I'm reading that at the moment on my Kindle, and uh, that is, in fact, it's almost certainly on Audible. And remember, if you go to Audible, you can go to audible.com forward slash cc for comedians comedian, and I think I get. I get a couple of quid. I mean, I don't know what it is. I think it's five quid, but it can't possibly be. It can't be five quid, can it? Anyway, um, have, a, have a look on Audible for Pat Oswald's latest venture. And if you're going to, to buy it and get a free trial, then uh, maybe I get a pound. Maybe I get 5p. Who knows? Um, but in this book, Patton Oswalt says that there is a particular type of laugh he recognised as a young comedian, which was a, a, the, the laugh of other comedians, which is kind of a barked, ha! at the back of the room. And I've certainly heard that myself and I've certainly laughed that laugh myself. So what that laugh means, though, is, is another, another question entirely of whether it's simply a recognition of something that I wish I'd thought of or whether... I mean, I suppose the comedians that I really laugh at... Comedy's about surprise, isn't it? I'm forever saying this. Something's got to be satisfying and surprising. That's not my concept, but it's, it's one to which I adhere. Um, and... I think when you are a professional comic or watch as much comedy and when you're involved in the craft of comedy as we do and as we are, then I think that you you recognise things so it's much harder to be surprised. So that's my answer. But you can email info at comedianscomedian.com or you can tweet me at comcompod um, with your own thoughts on that. Do you think non-comedians laugh at jokes in a different way to comedians? And if so, is it just at the technical ability? It can't just be at the technical ability, shortly. But anyway, interesting question there from listener Matt Whitby. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm fascinated by your opening sentence there, Matt. I never laugh at jokes, so laughter interests me. Let's assume you're not a serial killer of some sort. I mean, I, I, you're probably a very decent, regular guy who just never... I mean, never... Never laughs at jokes. Fascinating. Let's hear from, from you at home uh, as to what you think about that. And another one, and this, I mean, this was beautiful. We'll deal with this very quickly. This is from Adam Morrison-Jones. He sent me a tweet that simply said, been doing stand-up two years today, thanks to ComCom. Thanks, man. 
Well, thank you, Adam. That put a huge smile on my face. I mean, these days, as you know, I'm far less interested in pulling up the ladder than uh, replicating the ladder on a 3D printer and beaming it around the world of people's homes, thus giving everyone more ladders. So I'm, I'm so thrilled, Adam. Thank you. I'm very glad you're doing stuff. I mean, maybe, maybe you're terrible. Who knows? But uh, the simple fact that you're out there doing a thing and that you attribute that, at least in part, to this show makes me extremely happy. Thank you very much. We will do in shows to come. Maybe I'll think of an appropriate hashtag and we'll do a little sound off for anyone that reckons the, that ComCom helped them in there. I know I've got a running tag in my head we're, we're under 20 but it's still we're in double figures uh, of people who started a result of this podcast so um yeah keep at it keep at it all of you um that's almost everything if you'd like to support the show if you'd like to donate of course you can do that at comedianscomedian.com you can click on the paypal button and uh, specify your own choice of donation now i i mean we're on 120 shows now probably a pound a show is getting a little bit out of everyone's range what do we say 10 pence a show? What's that? 12 quid? 12 quid's a reasonable donation, isn't it? If you've listened to every single one, you could probably throw 12 quid at me. I think the show's worth 20, but that's my basic idea of, like, a drop, a street performer's drop for something that you've shared a bath with. If we've shared a bath together, I think it's... Or a, or a marathon. I think 20's a reasonable donation. But um, seriously, whatever you feel you can afford is... Uh, I, I'm enormously thankful for. I've had some... I will read at random now some uh, some names of people who've recently donated. Um, Alice Matthews has donated, not for the first time, I don't think. Matt Fraser is a, a name I think I recognise. Um, Julia Harrison, Paul Francis, Tom Jones. I mean, there's got to be lots of them, but let's hope it's him. Uh, Ian Jackson. Vaughan Yabsley has donated uh, several times as well and is blessed with a very f- memorable name. Um, Catherine Skillings, Hugh Marsh, Vivian Riddick. Vivian Riddick is probably my most frequent donator. And thank you to all of those names. If you would like to be on that roll call, <laughs> then um, then you can donate via PayPal at comedianscomedian.com or you can press some cash into my hand and say something cool. Now, on that subject, um, I, I told you that story last week of being at the, the Welsh Festival about whose name we never speculate. Uh, and Darren Hubbard pressed some cash into my hand. It was very kind of him. I told that story recently on my first official proper telly job, which was on um, uh, on Dave channel. It's Alan Davies as yet untitled and it's coming out in autumn. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I'll try and keep you posted. And I don't know whether they'll let me keep that anecdote in in the edit, because obviously it explicitly refers to and consequently slightly advertises the podcast. But I did tell the story about Darren pushing the cash into my pocket at a uh, at a urinal, and uh, it made Matt Lucas laugh. So I'm happy with that. We've got to be happy with that, whether it makes the edit or not. Um, that's all for now. Um, you can also, of course, if you're on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash comcompod. Let's get back now to the brilliant Mark Watson. Do you feel that you were part of uh, a vanguard almost of people who were changing comedy from... I've got a badge, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like, in terms, like you really, I feel that you really popularised the kind of reportage story, finding funny things in a thing that happened, rather than, you know, basically well, what I'm saying is I see a lot of older comics bitching on Facebook, or I used to in the last yes, five I years. Yes, that was what you meant. Older comics I, bitching on Facebook so about I. the fact that, oh, you don't need to, apparently you don't need to do jokes anymore. You just need to yeah. t- talk about a thing you did. I think the time that, the time that I came through in the same uh period as it was like the newcomers were me rod manford russell howard and it definitely was about that time that people started saying oh you don't need jokes anymore so i i think i was sort of accidentally was part of that kind of i mean no one ever consciously tried to create a movement of uh jokes not being 
valid anymore. It's just, um, it's just, uh, well, I think, because for me, obviously, it's the only way that I could approach it, as it was for, actually, Manford is a slightly different case, but certainly people like me and Russell were just, um, I, I don't think that I was actually part of that, though. I would say it was already happening, because there's a, there was a bunch of comedians like Dara, uh, Chris Addison, who came along maybe five years before me. And when I first went to Edinburgh and was watching stand-up, thinking, right, so this is how you do stand-up, those people were already doing that. So I'd say the swing towards anecdotal comedy happened sort of in the late 90s, and I, was, as a punter, was influenced by it. So I reckon I'm sort of second-generation, um, not vanguard. I reckon I, I'm sort of... Um, I, I, uh, I'm standing on the on the shoulders of... Uh, so I just briefly thought of standing on the shoulders of Dara. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> uh, and do he'd you... feel so powerful if you're on his shoulders. You, uh, he's do... such a might Carry on. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I just wish one time I could get on Dara. But, uh, yeah. And do you, do you ever recognise... I suppose there's the same question, maybe in a different way, is do you a ever... A great big beast of a man. Yeah, no, carry on. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever recognise uh, any of... Or did you ever recognise any of your style in people that came after you? Do you think there were elements of things that you did that were influential? Well, no, I don't think that I've been sort of... Uh, enough of an uh, enough of a figure to influence anyone really because I I think I would say that um, because basically Kitson's career runs not quite parallel to mine he was around three or four years before me but uh, Daniel Kitson is the kind of uh, defining person doing that sort of stuff I'd say in my he as I say not quite my generation but it's the same crop of comedians and. When I, so if I see people now doing the sort of stuff I do, like deconstructing the joke, um, deconstructing the business of comedy, not in a Stuart Lee way, but in, a, in a, the sort of stuff that I do, is, I suppose what I'm saying is, no, I don't think I've influenced anyone. Because <laughs> if you were going to be influenced by me, you might as well just be influenced by Kitson. I think like, you can only really regard someone as being influential over the next, over the, the next generation of comics if they are one of the crop of people that are the sort of leaders in that field, and that's never really been me. It's a, it's a bit different in music. In ba- with bands, there are definitely, like, B-league bands that, like, that, are, that have influenced... The Super Furry Animals, for example, one of the greatest bands, um, certainly of the 90s, maybe ever, uh, they were influenced an enormous number of bands around today. They were never as famous as, say, Oasis. But it's a bit different with comedy, because uh, with music, there is a kind of infinite scope for variety so Super Furries were doing something no one was ever doing so without being enormously famous they managed to influence uh, you know dozens of bands now I've never been able to do anything that other people weren't doing so if you were influenced by me it's only, you're only saying you were influenced by a, a school of like 12 or 15 one of the blights of my career is that I've never succeeded in doing something sufficiently different from anyone else that anyone would look at me and think um, I want to be like him and I, I do have a kind of I do have a sort of objective measure of this because uh, one of my best friends, Corey, ran the Chortle Student Awards for years and when entering it, people had to say who their influences were. So I would obviously look at the forms and um, <laughs> I would come up about one out of a thousand. It was virtually all Kitson and Stuart Lee and that's because they are the kind of... They're the, kind of, uh, they're the platonic ideals of comedians of my... You know, just so being influenced like me, by me would be like a supermarket wanting to be like Asda. Asda's not unsuccessful, but no, no aspiring tycoon thinks I'd love to be Asda. Yeah. 
So, just you, funnily enough, just you mentioning the, the student awards reminds me of something that I heard. There, there is pretty much a hundred percent failure rate on me uh, saying to people uh, on this show. Uh, I heard this about you. Almost every guest of mine goes, "Nope, ne- never happened." Don't know where it came uh, from. The, the two or three I've heard have all been wrong. Definitely, yeah. yeah. yeah so, yeah. <laughs> Um, but the, uh, I remember hearing at the time that one of the, one of the reasons that you won the did you do this did you win the student competition? It was the Daily Telegraph competition. The Daily Telegraph there, one. As it one was of the reasons then, yeah. you won it was that you. I think this is true. Um, was that you did a set that incorporated callbacks to all the other people's sets on the night? <laughs> yeah, that's not true. Oh but, no! Uh, come on! <laughs> <laughs> like, like, not, you know what I mean? Like, not necessarily written structurally ones, but just kind of, I'm, I'm sure I could, I think I, the reason that rang true for me was that I can sort of see that in your style, that you could, you would be able to... It's not completely, it's not true, but it is true that I, I did, in those situations where you've only got five minutes, I did always used to refer to what was going on, and, and I, I think I did in that, in that final refer to one previous set, and that's probably where that becomes inflated into a kind of... Um, yes, OK. A, uh, extraordinary... Yes, Watson meta. sat there scribbling during everyone else's acts. Watson is a student of the game. But um, <laughs> it was true that I used to do quite well in those kind of competitions because I would just comment freely on what had already happened and basically, was, and, and a lot of people obviously feel tied to the five minutes that they've planned. Yes. I've never really had the discipline to deliver a, a, a set routine. Even doing stuff like Live at the Apollo and stuff, I've spent a fair bit of time just talking about what we've already seen, which uh, has been one of the reasons that I've not made huge inroads in TV because the way they edit TV they end up with 15 minutes of me describing an act which is being cut from the show. So um, I, um, I, can ne- I never seem to get it into my head that TV shows don't appear sequentially in the same order the other night. So <laughs> n- normally if I do something like Live at the Apollo, my best gags will be about someone that's been on before, but when the broadcast goes out, they're on after. So, um, uh, so probably I got a lot of credit for doing actually a very small amount of that sort of thing when I was okay. starting out because not many people do do that in open... I never was... It wasn't, you know... You're, you're portraying it now as if it's a weakness with regard to the competitions, with regard to the, the TV. But obviously it suggests a certain amount of licence, a certain amount of agency on your part that you felt... You, you just felt sufficiently comfortable talking to an audience. I think it was because I didn't have an enormous amount of stand-up to draw on. I was never a, uh, a student of it. Like, I, in those open mic competitions, I met people... Uh, who had already been planning to be comedians for three or four years, and there are far more of these people coming through now as well. When I see these student competitions now, the overall level of um, uh, comedy savviness and awareness of the traditions and stuff is very high. You get a lot of people that they might not have much material, but they've they've got all the tricks and the mannerisms. I didn't really know much about stand-up when I was going to these competitions, and I'd not been on the circuit either. Quite a lot of people uh, enter open mic competitions having already done dozens of gigs they've lived in London because you can enter them for two or three years I literally was a newcomer I'd only ever done four or five gigs and those were at university so I didn't know what I was so I'd, I didn't really have the mentality of tailoring a five minutes in the way that other people did because uh, I hadn't seen stand up that way so it seemed a natural thing for me to just chat about what mm. had happened and often there'd be an elephant in the room because stand up is really embarrassing when it's an open mic thing there's 15 people there most of them are contestants themselves so it would be natural to me to say oh this is very awkward isn't it and um <laughs> other people would feel they wouldn't go through to the next round if they acknowledge that so people would play these heats as if they were in front of a sort of palladium style crowd whereas i would just spend the time saying this is desperately awkward there's hardly any of us here and everyone's shit and um that you know so i think I, I built my sort of successful open mic career on i did have some material but i think i was also uh, popular with judges because i would happily say what everyone was thinking, which is we always we weren't in this situation. 
almost almost everything that you that you've said so far in the last 20 minutes has has come from a place of like incredible humility about your ability and you you sort of position yourself as if you are this kind of not and I don't mean on stage I kind of mean now you position yourself as if you're sort of bumbling through it and you don't really you, you know, you, like, you, well, I guess this sort of ended up, I suppose I was able to do this. You position yourself in a very, very low status kind of way. And I, I like, obviously, you're sort of receiving compliments. There's a lot of people here to, to, to hear what you think. Whenever it's I... It's not full, is it? It's not full, Karen. Whenever... Should have flied, I should have flied. I yeah, feel um... like I do something similar about this podcast, which, like it or not, is the most successful thing I've done. Whenever I do it, whenever, when people tell me they like the show and I go, oh, oh thanks very much, I'm very, you know, I, I feel like I'm sort of similarly humble. And when I do it, it's because I'm, I feel afraid that if I go, it's fucking good, isn't it? Then somehow a shoe will drop. Yeah. I, I was just all thinking about what the phrase a shoe will drop means, I think. <laughs> I think... Don't, don't let him get out of this. This is a good question. There's a real sense in the room that... We're, what I did was... We, just, we, just, we all want to make up our minds whether that is a thing or I not. I took the phrase... <laughs> I took the phrase, the other shoe will drop, and I, I took away from that phrase, I took as read the fact that a first shoe had dropped. Right, OK. <laughs> Fine. But you see my point. Well, I, like, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm purely just taking issue with the way that you've gone about it. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Does it come from uh, a, a sort of uh, instinct to distance myself from achievements in order to not look like a dick? Yeah. Or, or is yeah. it not, not, not looking like a dick, but a worry that you're tempting fate somehow? If you, is, yes. that, is that what you mean by yes. this now infamous <laughs> shoe metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag shoe metaphor, everyone, at ComComPod. Well, I, I, you know, this, this will, when this goes on Twitter, this will be huge, I think. Yeah, um. So, but do you see what I mean? Like, you, you position yourself as I'm a kind of. Yeah, uh, I'm a low-status person now, and, and I... I you saying, I, am I doing that because I worry that things will go wrong if I acknowledge yeah, I that they're going well? Because as you've, you, you, your more recent material has included admissions of anxiety, and, and you talked about perhaps being a functioning alcoholic, or perhaps having, having been a functioning alcoholic. There, like, there I, seems to be a lot more... It's, 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 like, it's five o'clock. <laughs> um, there, yeah. there seems to be a lot more kind of honest stuff in your comedy these days, and, that, and a lot of that honest stuff appears to be about anxiety and angst and unhappiness in yeah. a way that there wasn't that material before. So I'm just wondering if there is, if a way into talking about that might be the fact that you maybe don't believe in yourself as a comic as, as much as we all think you should. Well, yes, I don't really, and I think that kind of... I, I mean, it's certainly not a pose. It's difficult to unpick it because... Uh, Positioning yourself low status is such a common thing, such a common trope, if you will, uh, for a certain type of comedian that you you almost ex- expect it of people. So, um, you know, most comedians instinctively will set themselves up kind of as the underdog, even in even in, and that applies even to comics that are known to be millionaires and are playing enormous venues. You'll still see them. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Tell stories out of which they come badly or which they, you know, so, um, so it's difficult to know at what point you're just, you're just settling into a pattern of, you know, because it'd be very odd for a person like me to be anything other than a self-facing comedian. But I think that I've definitely, um, I've never really felt that um, kind of successful or, or that things, or that I'm achieving what I ought to be other than in those very early days. When your first couple of years, you, you can rise quite quickly as a comedian. And um, I think I, for a long time, I was sort of doing all right and reaping the, the benefits of it and but people always assumed that oh, people were always asking interviews are you as kind of happy-go-lucky and crazy as you seem on stage and I was increasingly aware that I was selling a very false version of myself and it wasn't deliberate I didn't think I'll try and look really kind of uh, wacky on stage it was just that I used stand-up as a sort of escape I suppose psychically from I was still writing these books all this time I was writing novels on progressively bleaker topics but the comedy never really went into those and one once uh I met someone uh, who I, whose uh, opinion I respected, and they said, I've just read one of your books. This is about five years ago. Um, he said, I've just read one of your books, and, and I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought, where is that imagination on stage? I've never seen any aspects of your personality like that on stage. Why, why is your range of uh, subjects so narrow? And it's true that for four or five years as a stand-up, I just basically mined a very narrow seam, or I suppose it'd be more a shallow seam, really, if we're thinking about mining accurately uh, I, um, which you know it's important to do um, if, you, if you think imprecisely about metaphors suddenly you're chucking shoes in where they shouldn't be um, so um, I think basically these days I'll, uh, I'll challenge myself to, to um, uh, get, because I was always kind of I always had a quite um, jumpy uh, nervy personality but I, I never really engaged with any of the negative aspects of my psyche on stage I think partly because um, I'd got used to writing novels, and you have a kind of a three, four weeks, however long it takes for someone to read a novel. You, you're, you're, you have that long in the person's head. In stand-up, you've, you've only ever got an hour, or occasionally twenty-seven, but that is an outlier. And um, you, so you, you, you're conscious of a pressure to amuse people. I've seen comedians delve into really dark territory on stage and go ten, fifteen minutes, really without a laugh. They're just building up stuff. They're just, you know. And I really admire that, but I've never, I've always found that very difficult to do. I've always felt that if I'm going to um, go into darker areas, it, it can't be at the expense of the audience's entertainment because no one pays to see uh, me 
kind of self-therapise. They, they want to see something fun. So it's only in the past couple of shows that I've given myself that licence, basically, yeah. And in, in, the, in your work last night, there were something that I really admired, but it's interesting in the, in the light of what you just said, is that you, you will often mention a weighty topic and then the joke that finishes that bit is actually a joke about some other aspect of it. Like, you were talking about alcoholism, and, and I'm aware this is the first show in a... You know, this is the first attempt in, in the uh, yeah. creation of a show, and, and we could talk about how that might develop. But the, the, you did a joke, and I sort of don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but you're talking about alcohol, alcoholism, but the actual punchline of that bit is a joke at the moment, is a joke about um, sort of saying that you're not going to reveal a famous person and then saying something which invokes who they could be. Uh, yeah. So it's like the punchline isn't about alcoholism. Do you, do you want the punchline to be about alcohol? Yeah, what I yearn for is to be able to take on any subject at all and just make it into comedy. And when I see the real top-level top comics, um, or not even comics, just, just artists generally, that is, again, that's one of the things that differentiates them from me, is that they'll just say, I'm talking about this, I'm going to talk about it, and they'll take the audience with them. Like, a, a, a proper... Um, if you're going to... Because even the last show was, um, which is, is my best show, uh, I did it in Edinburgh last year. I toured with it. This was flaws. Yeah, mm. I mean it was fine, but like really, someone else could have done a lot better with the exact same premise. Like uh, the 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 show was about um, about being honest about my flaws, essentially, uh, and it was about the fact that I'd never really delved into this stuff on stage. So it was a sort of coming of age show as a comedian. And it was fine. Like, it, 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 I mean, it went really well in terms of the... Um, it was pretty well-reviewed, as well-reviewed as I'll ever be, which is pretty well, and the audiences liked it. But I was aware that I'd kind of still taken the soft options. Like, there were jokes in it which didn't really cohere, but they would get big laughs. Or I would shy away from really big topics. And the most perceptive critics would say, this is good, but it could have been better. And that is sums me up quite well I think I've always really struggled to find the that killer instinct for you know uh if I'm writing a book it doesn't matter if I've got a, if I'm writing a book on a specific subject I, I, people probably don't know but I've written a number of novels and with those I do kind of go no holds barred because the audience isn't in front of you so you can sort of be as fearless as you want. plus no one reads the book so it doesn't matter um, <laughs> but if you're in front of two three hundred people every night it is it's hard to find the um, artistic... Uh, what's the word? Ch- ch- I don't know how you pronounce it. Chutzpah. 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 It's, it, it takes a certain person to, to, to really go all out in that way. And do I you think. aspire to do that? Do you oh, aspire yeah. to grow that, to become that person that can, yeah. that can go longer without a laugh but get to the bottom of what it is you're yeah, saying? Yeah, I think so. And, yeah. I, and I, I should say, I don't mean what I said about your show last night to be critical. No, well, it no. was funny and you were also bringing up the, the subject... So we, we became aware of the subject. Yeah, I'm getting there, but I will tend to... I'll always still go to a safe place if I know it's got... Like, you know, um, and I'm, I'm... Like any comedian that's been going as long as I have, I'm pretty well-practised in uh, playing the crowd for laughs or if I'm in a slightly awkward place, you can normally get yourself out and you have those tricks up your sleeve, but those will potentially detract from the... From the it's difficult because, as I say, nobody wants to see a show where... Uh, you get into some sort of difficult intellectual territory, but it's not that much fun to watch. Like I'm all, I've always got an eye on that uh, kind of laugh level, and but but still, the, sh- the last show flaws would definitely have been better if I if it had say ten percent fewer laughs. 
and I'd gone harder on two or three of the key themes, but I just don't have in, I don't have the moral fibre yet to do that. I don't okay. think. Um, and you know, you can imagine like the show. The show sold lots of tickets. Relic, not lots of tickets, but for me, it went well on, on tour in Edinburgh. By any measure, it was a success. So if you've got something that's working, it is quite hard to yes. take a punt on. Do something that you think is better, but the, but this again, this is why you, if you've if you've got genuine artistic metal of a type, which I don't think I do have, then you'll do that. Uh, the classic example, like Radiohead, made Kid A after OK Computer. They'd made the best album of of the decade. They knew that everyone would hate the next album if they did it the way they were going to do it, uh, but they still did it. But that's why they're Radiohead and I'm not because if that if if I'd been me if I'd been Radiohead after OK Computer I'd have made an album that was a lot like OK Computer and, and people would have gone oh you're still great and I'd have been thanks guys um, <laughs> Radiohead made Kid A it was panned by critics ten years later everyone said oh this is great actually I don't think I have enough about me to do something which in ten years time people will admit was good I need people to like it in ten seconds time and that's an understandable failing but it holds you back from making something of real lasting value I think yeah I think um, I, I don't know if my, I, all my examples are musical, unfortunately, because I don't. I'm more into music than comedy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I may be wrong, but I feel like the attitude of this room. I won't speak for everyone. I'll just speak for me. I feel like shaking you and going, why can't you admit yeah. you're a success? Sorry about, I'm sorry about the tone of all this. Yeah. It's just, um, like, it just seems the way you describe everything is like, oh, if I were better, I well, could do this. You're, you're good. We want you to like yourself. The trouble is, I, I think the thing is, because uh, um, occasionally I have a moment where I think, why can't I sort of accept you know, where I'm... I think the, the thing is that... Um, I don't know, this is going to sound terrible, but if I was working for UNICEF or something and I was, like, the 18th best person, I'd think, still, what I'm doing is so intrinsically valuable that I'm proud to just be a part of it. But comedy, I'm not saying it's not important, but stand-up is kind of a slightly narcissistic or insular thing to do. Uh, Of course, it's important for people to have a good time. Entertainment's important. I'm not saying that there's no value to it, but it's quite an egocentric thing to do, I think. So... To justify it, I think I'd want to be the absolute best at it. Um, but also, I think whatever I did, I'd want to be the absolute best at. I, it, you know, if, if I were um, a snooker player or a tennis player or something where they have rankings and I was, like, number 72, I, I wouldn't be able to help thinking, well, how do I get into the top 10? And it's basically that. If there were rankings for comedians, I'd be, like, in the UK rankings, I'd be... Yeah, like in the 50s or 60s, and it's human nature to think, well, how do I get into the 30s and 20s? You can't not, I don't think. As long as there are people better than you, 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 I think it's natural to want to push yourself towards. And the difference is with writing, I would be nowhere in the rankings, there are thousands of better writers, but writers write books for the the whole of a lifetime. Like Writing novels is a craft which you develop over 50 years, so it doesn't bother me that authors in their 60s are... Um, a lot more accomplished than me. I feel I can grow into that. As a stand-up, I feel like there are people that just naturally better. Of course, it's really unhealthy to compare yourself to people. Well, it is. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, there's a, there's a, I think there's a poem or something about it. Um, or there's that, there's that thing you get on toilet doors that says there'll always be someone better than you or worse than you, so that's fine. Um, it's a prayer. But... Um, <laughs> But it's, it's just... Can, you, can I, you be happy, though, if you're always comparing yourself? Like, the thing I, the no, thing I, I often... No, I don't think so, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> the thing, the when thing, do we start talking about that? <laughs> the thing I always fall back on thinking in that, in that situation is, like, you know, Ricky Gervais probably wants to be a Hollywood leading man. It's true. I mean, no matter what you've got, you want, the, you want the thing above it. You want to be in the top ten of uh, the new category that you've just sought out. It's true. If you... If you um, there's people having a better time even in this building. Like, <laughs> small wonder that you can pay yourself to. Yeah, it's not. A, and, but I should, I should just, um, I should make it clear that when when you talk about, like, I don't think I don't look at say Michael McIntyre or Jimmy Carr and think, uh, I wish I was selling that many tickets. Always that. It's purely when I when I my my disappointments are all to do with feeling like I haven't achieved what I could, or just feeling like I wish I was actually better at it. I'm not jealous of other people's, I'm not constantly looking at someone saying, why has he got a TV show, or why is she, you know, it's, it's about um, an artistic level you want to reach, rather than kind of commercial success. Because it would be, I'd be whinging if I said, oh, I don't have a good time. Obviously, at the level I'm at, I tour, um, I sell plenty of tickets, I make a good living out of doing something which is a lot less onerous than most people's jobs. So I'm not... I hate it if all of this ended up sounding like I was complaining about my lot in life. It's not that. It's just that I think it's natural to want to to aspire to be the best that you can. And while it's, maybe it's not even about other people, it's just I want to be the best that I can. And I don't think I've reached that, but I'm not quite sure how to get to that level either. Um, but it's certainly true that there's hardly anyone in comedy or in any branch of entertainment that doesn't look at someone else and think... Why isn't that me? As you say, even Gervais will be... Sure. There'll have been disappointments, there'll have been things he didn't get. So there's no real... There's no future in looking at things thinking, why haven't I done that? Mm. It's just it's natural to do that, I think. I want to talk a, b- a bit more about the craft of, uh, of particularly... Not just the jokes, but the shows. Because something I remember when uh, I supported you on tour in something like 2007? Not something like 2007. Oh, you're good with dates, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm, yeah. yeah, good. Yeah, it was, uh, it was exactly like 2007. <laughs> yeah. How many, how many letters are in the word hieroglyph? <laughs> Ten. That's, um, Very suspicious. That's a thing quick. I can do. Um, <laughs> um, they're all doing it in their head, but it, you'll find it's ten. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've got an a, a absolutely useless skill where I can just say, tell you how many letters are in the word. Yeah. It's useful if someone else is doing a crossword and, and it's like nine letters. I remember counting. And they'll say something like, you know, calligraphy, and you're like, no, it's not nine, is it? But, um, <laughs> I remember I'm casually popular. referring to you as being on the spectrum as a result of that. You're getting quite cross. Yeah, spectrum. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, eight, but yeah. Um, when when uh, something I noticed, I remember from that show was that you got at the at the you explained in the show structurally at the beginning of the show that at 40 minutes there would be a lull such as there always is in a, yeah. in a comedy show. So at 40 minutes, could you get you, you, you pick someone from the audience, get you with the timer, can you start chanting lull, lull at the 40-minute lull? That's right, yeah. It's a really funny idea, which also perfectly sewed up the actual real 40-minute lull, or the possibility of a, a real 40-minute lull. Yeah, you, beautifully handled. You've done... Uh, you have a similar... A similar device regarding uh, encores. Yeah, in, I've never done that before until last lovely, night, but yeah. Right. But you... Uh, you're, you seem to have a, a real degree of fluency with coming up with little things. Do you mean like a really smart approach to the actual real challenges, say, of, of the structure of a show? I remember also one of the, one of the shows you toured in 2000 and around then seven or eight, I can't remember because I did both, was the Seven Deadly Sins one where you would, get, you would have chunks of material on seven different things and get audience members to pull thing out of a, things out of a bag such yeah. that it was in a different order every night. 
So with ideas like that, do you... At what point in the process do those ideas occur? Well, I'm always trying to take the pressure off the audience a bit. I think I do things like the lull, or last night we had a kind of um, a scheduled encore, like halfway through the show, um, purely to sort of raise everyone's collective spirits. And Because um, I always think that um, the mistake people make when they think, uh, oh, it must be really difficult to do comedy, is they assume that the audience is hostile. So people will always ask you, how do you deal with hecklers? How do you deal with difficult audiences? But in, and there was, there was one dick in the crowd last night. Um, but the majority of audiences want to have a good time as much as you want them to have a good time. So things like the lull that happens about 40 minutes in or uh, awkward moments that come about are not... They're the responsibility of you and the audience jointly to sort of to work together against, I think. And I do like to create the sense that you and the audience are all in the same boat, not out of some sort of smarminess, because I genuinely believe it. I believe that everyone does want the show to go well. Um, and so I will, I'm, I'm, yeah, forever coming up with gimmicks to break down the, the difficulty of... I mean, an hour is a long time for people to laugh at just one man talking. If there are ways you can address that and undermine it, and in doing that, uh, address some of the problems of it. I'll do it, but those ideas can come at different times. With with that thing with the um, the seven deadly sins thing, uh, it came about very late. I had a show that was working reasonably well, but something was just wrong. And it was it, I, I, I would talk about each of the seven deadly sins in turn with jokes, and um, just something. I was doing previews, and the show was just like most of my shows, just very, very competent, but not exciting. Um, and, but unlike most of my shows, I managed to crack the problem. Um, I thought, well, what if, what if the sins always came in a different order? And so, I, so very late, like three days before Edinburgh, I thought, I'll, I'll just, we'll just do it in a different order every night. I'll just randomise the order of the seven subjects and get the audience to dictate the order of the show. Because I knew that I had the material. It, w- it would just mean that every show was a little bit different. And um, that simple idea transformed the show because it meant I never knew which bit of the show was coming next, which meant that I was more sort of mentally alert. But those ideas can come, yeah, really late in the process. E- even when I'm very familiar with the show, I'm always looking to sort of t- tinker with the structure in a way that can... Because you do, especially in Edinburgh, or even a festival like this, people see a lot of the one-hour show. Mm. So you see most of what can be done. You see most possible approaches, most possible subjects. If there's anything I can do to surprise an audience or in some way change the structure or the approach, I'll try and do it. Um, And the most extreme example of that is these 24-hour shows. A lot of the reason I do those is because that's one thing that's mine that other people aren't doing. Yes. And whether it's good or not, at least it's my idea and the format is, is, is something that other people aren't doing unless I, I do I it. I wanted yeah. to come on to that because you did mention, when, when you mentioned that sense that we're all in this together, it was quite clear, I remember from seeing some of the very, I don't think I saw the first one, but the second year you did the 24-hour show, it was, uh, it was clear that the game was we're all in this together and we all have to fill the time together. Yeah, And, and that- so you get to captain this ship full of people heroic people that want to make something happen where there was nothing. Yeah, and in the long shows, that is very obvious because people are undergoing physical suffering. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that in miniature is even how I feel about a one-hour show, really, or a theatre-length show, two hours, however long it is. I do feel like, of course, you're at the helm, but, but everyone, everyone can cooperate to make it a, a good time. So that, if there are people shouting stuff out, I will try and accommodate them rather than just attack them because... My default position is always to assume that everyone wants to have fun, yeah. The marathon shows are an extreme example because there is a, a tangible sense that we all need to work together or people will uh, lose the will to live. But um, that can happen even in a very short-form comedy show. So, yeah, I, I, I do think... 
you know, I think the comedian has a, not exactly a responsibility, but kind of a mandate from the audience to do whatever is necessary. We all t- work together to, to, you know, to do it. You should come away feeling, you should come away from a comedy show feeling that, not necessarily that you've had to work or that you've contributed, but that the comedians done everything possible to give you a good time while you're in that building. Given, really. that, yeah. given that you're the captain of that ship and you're the person who has to remain responsible for it the whole time, and, and you, no matter how many uh, lieutenants you've got, you've, you, you need to be the person who is undergoing the most hardship. No matter, no matter how many times Tin and Duyeb has his back shaved, you, you, know, you, you need to be the person who is who is kind of doing the most suffering, almost. Like, you're the person that's bearing, you're Atlas holding the, the, the globe. That's how I see myself. <laughs> yeah. And so I was going to ask, what sort of state, creatively, do you end up in? Are there moments within, 20, within 27 hours? Do, and given that you've done a few of them, do you have kind of, do you, things, do you feel things like, well, any minute now I'm going to hit the hour nine endorphin rush, or I'm going to, round about hour 14, something I'm going to be getting really pie-eyed, and normally something extra creative happens then? Or? Yeah, it, you do become like a veteran marathon runner. You sort of know how 20-odd hours feels psychologically so you, you expect certain kind of highs and lows um, and it is true that you have to the shows only work because i as you say i remain kind of the person that's in the most trouble if there was a sense that i could just hand over to someone for two or three hours then there'd be no jeopardy at all i have to be i think creatively you're in quite an odd state by the end of it because you've set up so many things during the show that um your, your mind is like a kind of uh, pin board with dozens and dozens of post-it notes on it. You, you know, you, there are, there is, there's always so much unfinished business at the end of these shows. So you, in a sense, you're kind of creatively hyper-stimulated because your brain has been in this adrenalised state for 20-odd hours and you never really switch off from it. So in, in a way, it's the most creatively alive you ever can be because for 20-odd hours, your brain has been racing with the challenge of um, keeping people interested. But also, you're really tired. Uh, so I would liken it to being like a pleasantly drunk or something. Quite often, if you're drunk, or people talk like this about recreational drugs as well, I don't really, I've never really done this, but people will often say that under the influence of this or that, you'll have ideas that you're certain are great ideas, and then uh, in the light of day, they're not so good. There's a lot of that in the 27-hour shows. You feel kind of like a genius, but you're also aware that the next day you'll feel like a tired, weird man. And um... There's something of those shows in which I've seen or participated or been, a, been an audience member in, there seem to be kind of several different... Uh, types of audience member you go people within the room there'll be celebrity pals that are helping you there'll be kind of non-higher profile you know less lower profile uh, comedians who are involved some way i'll include myself in that playing animal verb for example in the last one which you bought us a whole hour i mean that was yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of fun there there'll also be kind of what i would think of as kind of regular punters and then they, they, they you seem to attract a high level of the sort of die hard comedy super fans who stay with you, who kind of want to come and see every single one of those shows. Yeah, I think the nature of it, of a 25 or 27-hour show, is, is inevitably it will attract people that think, uh, that like the challenge of being there for that long, or that genuinely are so into comedy that they can't think of anything better than being in a room <laughs> with comedians for a day. Um, but I've always been quite grateful that... I, I, I was talking about this recently. I, I think m- most, um, most comedians have a sort of... Uh, more, most comedians of any profile have you'll get a contingent of um, super fans, not your own super fans, but just people that are very, very into comedy. But I'm, I'm always quite uh, 
sort of grateful that the, the people, that even the most extreme fans that I have are still pretty normal, functioning people. Whereas if you go up a couple of levels of fame from me, you start to get people who it's not, it's not quite right. And um, <laughs> I've seen it. I, I've, I've seen it myself. I mean, I inherited a lot of fans from Tim Minchin because of the uh, stuff I did with him in my early career. But the people that migrated... They didn't migrate to me because they never abandoned... No-one ever leaves the Minchin ship. But... Um, <laughs> The, the fans that I uh, ended up sharing with Minchin tended to be uh, the kind of the more soft core end of his fan base, people that are into comedy but aren't, aren't using it to cover up gigantic problems. Uh, whereas um, whereas uh, um, <laughs> somebody, uh, somebody liked him, and Minchin is only the, he's only the example I use because he's a good friend of mine, so I, I'm conversant with his fan base. But um, there, are, there are certainly a lot of top-level comedians who... Um, acquire a fan base of people who, and I don't, I don't, despite the callous way I said that, I would never, I don't have disdain for these people at, at all because we're all propped up by the fact that people love comedy and they want to see it. So, however into comedy someone is, that's absolutely fine with me. And I, I'm never, I, I tend to be, as comedians go, as respectful of fans as possible, I think, because I'm really grateful for them. But it's definitely true that some people just do get a bit too into it. And I don't think I have those fans really. Even the, the most, Mad people that come to my shows are still people that like could open a bank account and it'd be fine. Yeah, like... <laughs> um, we were talking a little bit earlier on about the Stuart Lee incident and the the kind of what I want to ask about is the the fallout of what happened five years ago with the advert. Was it five years ago? Uh, yeah, six now. Six yeah. years ago, whereby yeah. two of the kind of two of the most foremost kind of outspoken voices in comedy, Stuart Lee and Frankie Boyle, both basically had some manner of pop at you for doing an advert. And I know you've spoken about that a lot since, but I kind of want to just... I'm just wondering what the, the long-term ramifications of that are and whether it... Given that we now know from your work that you suffer from anxiety and, and angst and things like that, it, whether some of that's responsible, whether you feel that hangs over you or whether you feel you were able to deal with it and move on. Well, the first thing I should say is that I never really... Um... I definitely did underestimate how much people would care about it. Like, because I don't pay any attention to adverts at all. I'm aware that, that there are loads of much more, um, much more famous people than me that do adverts, and I would, I'd never, I myself would never judge them for it or even in, associate them with that brand because I, I think I'm virtually impervious to adverts. Um, and I sort of feel like most people are, really. Like I don't, especially now, you, you don't ever need to watch adverts, really, because of the way TV works now. It wasn't the case in 2009. So, but also, the advert, which was, in case anyone doesn't know, was for uh, Pear Cider, was as really innocuous stuff, an innocuous brand. The content of the advert was very... There was really nothing controversial about it. And by contrast, there was nothing that un- I felt that undermined my, um, uh, myself as a comedian because I, I hadn't built a career on saying cider's shit, no one should drink here. Um, so, and I, it seems really naive now, but when I was offered the advert, I didn't think people might judge me for this. I, I certainly didn't think there would be people that enjoyed my comedy that would feel in some way cheated by the fact that I'd... And to be honest, I don't think there were either. The, the, the criticism came... I, 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 I wasn't aware of anyone criticising me who... I, don't, I never met anyone that said, I used to like your comedy, but now you've tried to advertise Pear Cider. I don't like it anymore. Because I, I, I don't think that's a logical standpoint to have. I mean, Stephen Fry's done loads of adverts without anyone ever. So, um, but yeah, there was... There was, uh, there was... I mean, Stuart Lee never kind of... Um, 
he never addressed it with me, or, or but he'd started doing a bit of his show about it. It's a weird way to find out that you've fallen out of favour with Stuart Lee, is for people to start talking about a great routine about you that he's got. And, um, <laughs> it, um, yeah, it did affect me, partly because... Uh, the Frankie Boar thing was separate. I, I sort of asked for trouble there because I, I got into a spat with him over some of his material and um, that was a sort of different situation. With Stuart, nobody wants to be criticised by Stuart Lee because he does have this uh, position as the kind of uh, moral compass of, of comedy and, and not even moral, just the, the compass of comedy. He pretty much seems to get to say whether anyone's funny or not. And um, uh, his, his power over, the, over the comedians is... is um, extraordinary so I didn't but also I partly felt undermined by it because I felt that it was probably true if somebody says that you're a dick for doing an advert a part of you can't help thinking yeah I guess I probably am because there's no denying that I'd done it for the money Uh, there was various mitigating circumstances like there was an ambitious novel I wanted to write it took a year to do it I knew I'd have to not do much comedy the advert pretty much paid for that so I did do it with with an eye to sort of uh, furthering my artistic and so on but still it's very hard to counter the accusation that you're a sellout for doing an advert. I, I did sort of feel that if I was Stuart Lee, I wouldn't be talking about a lesser comedian, and I do feel that sometimes with him. That yeah. there's kind of I, it feels like a cheap shot if, if criticizing somebody that is already less famous than you for doing something they've done in order to acquire success. So I don't know. I felt any, but mostly I felt weird about it because I'd never ever, I'm such a sort of uncontroversial figure that I'd never rubbed up anyone the wrong way before. I'd never been in a, a beef or I don't think even Jay-Z had a, anything against me. I, I, um, it's a very, very weird feeling to, to be criticised by people. With, and the Frankie Boyle thing was much more difficult to deal with because he has such a big outspoken online following that I had an awful lot of like, hate tweets and hate actual hate mail and stuff as well so that was worse but um in both cases i think what was odd for me was just um i'd um i'd i'd and again i know this sounds kind of disingenuous or like false modesty but i genuinely never thought anyone would give a shit whether i advertise cider or not Mm. um did it but if i could have my time again i think i'd still do it because I, i i don't think any of the criticism was sufficiently damning to make me think i shouldn't have done that it just made me think I'm going to need to prepare myself for uh, criticism. In a way, it was a good exercise to be harshly criticised by my peers. It's just no one likes that at the time. And I've never had the same... I've never I've, Before that, i would gotten very well with Stuart. When you find out someone's basing a portion of their stand-up show on you being a dick, it, it does change things a bit. And um, have, you, have you spoken to him about it? In place? We've never discussed it. You have to get a, a permit to speak to Stuart now. And... Um, <laughs> Um, you must presumably do a lot of festivals uh, at which uh, he's present. Yeah, do you, do I, you make eye contact? I see sh- him all the time, and we speak civilly. Um, not Frankie Ball. I've, I've never met Frankie Ball since this high-profile uh, falling out. And if I did, it would be difficult. But uh, Stuart, I kind of, um, I think I sort of accept that he gets to say what he likes, and you just have to still get. get but you've on with never, him. and you've never addressed it. You've never said, "Hey, should we uh, do no, a coffee and let's talk about it?" I haven't. Partly because I. I he seems like someone that probably would disapprove of all the coffee chains that you get. <laughs> yeah, I, like, it, I'd, I'd need to find one that was... Def- I don't go to Starbucks, like, I'm not an idiot, but I, I, I still think you'd, you'd probably have to... No, because also I sort of... I, I, I partly because I, I've seen the bit that he, that he does about it, and it is kind of 
uh, derisory rather than actually aggressive. Frankie was aggressive. He, he actually he, he said various quite hurtful things. Stuart was just kind of damning in the way that he is damning about comedians that have fallen short of a very high moral bar that he sets. So I suppose I take solace in the fact that I'm not the only person to have disappointed him. Um, (laughs) And also, I mean, I don't... I I like him, actually, as a guy, but I think if we had coffee, it would be pretty awkward. Um... (laughs) Because I, there, do, do you want a kind of closure on it? Or have you just, do you not think about it, it's dealt with? Do you know what? The, with the Stuart Lee thing, I don't really mind it because it's, it's dealt with in the sense that I don't think he does, he talks about it on stage anymore. I don't think he spends much time thinking about me anymore. He himself will have probably forgotten all this. The Frankie Boyle thing, I would like closure uh, for, but I, I don't think I can have it because I don't think I can ever... It's hard to imagine him apologising. Yeah, and there's nothing I can do that can repair that. I don't like to go through life with a sense of any um, psychic uh, unpleasantness that's not been clear. Basically what happened, in case anyone doesn't know, was that I wrote a blog taking the view that comedians should try not to be offensive, which is unfashionable. These days a lot of comedians are in the business of saying, we should talk about whatever we like. Uh, It's meant to be comedy. If you don't like it, don't come. And I just wrote a blog saying, that is not quite true because because of youtube and stuff if you do a joke about fat people or whatever it might be there are two or three million people see that the the, the defense of like if you don't like it don't watch comedy doesn't really apply anymore because comedy is now so successful that it infiltrates uh you know our social discourse and it has the opportunity to affect stereotypes and assumptions in a way that it never had before which i still think is a valid point but unfortunately as my example i use the fact that frankie boyle had a go at people with down syndrome in his show or a specific person with Down syndrome, and the the, the defence, the standard defence that he used was, well, you shouldn't be there unless you expect... But but I hadn't been at the show, so, and I hadn't seen what happened, and so I didn't really have the right to do that. I used him without knowing the full facts of it. and But again, I did that, thinking, well, if Frankie ever hears about this, he's not going to care. Because if you're a comedian that prides himself on being massively offensive... Or perhaps he doesn't pride himself on that, but he certainly allows himself licence to say what the hell he likes about anyone. And he's four or five rungs up the comedy ladder from me, so I just didn't think he'd ever care. And at the time, he didn't even know about it. The blog came out, and there was no reaction to it. Like, a year and a half later, somebody sent it to him, and suddenly he went into... And he called me all these things, and he, he said that I was... I had done this advert, I had no status, and, and all this kind of thing. And that was harder to deal with, because... My instinct was just to try and repair the damage and, you know, say, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean... But I don't think I'm in a position to ever do that with him because, as you say, he's never going to... I don't even want him to apologise. I would just like to meet him and for him to say, let's just forget about that. Mm. But I don't imagine he even feels like being conciliatory about it. It doesn't seem like he's the sort of bloke to do that. So that's a regret. I don't know what I can do about that, really. I don't like going through life feeling that somebody dislikes me to that extent. But if it was a case of... Uh, hugging it out, I'd definitely... Uh, I'd, I'd do it at a venue of his choosing. But um, <laughs> I suspect I'm going to have to accept that I can't ever make that right. Yeah. Um, we've been uh, given a few extra minutes. Uh, if anyone does have a yeah. question, then feel free to put a hand up. Come on, Mark, you're in Wales. Explain why you it's pretended a, to be Welsh. It's fair enough, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, you, you asked it very... You, you were. You, Sorry, um, I, I, I've, I've you've made I it unfaithfully yeah, re- yeah. represented um, that. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, yeah, basically it was. that It made me more comfortable to have a sort of a persona because um, when I started out, I thought, 
I really want to do this, but I, it, would be, it would be very awkward to be talk, just standing there talking, which is what puts most people off, the idea of doing stand-up. You think, you imagine your own voice, it sounds really loud. Ah, oh, it's horrible. Um, a lot of aspects of doing stand-up are quite sort of creepy, really. So I thought, and I knew I could, I'd had Welsh family, I could do a Welsh accent. Um, I had done a Welsh character in a show at university, so I knew that I could, and it suited my persona quite well. Um, but it wasn't a strategy. It was just something I did in those early gigs, because the gigs were five minutes long, and I felt like it didn't matter. Um, I, then it became successful, and I had accidentally carved a niche for myself as that Welsh guy. And I was um, pretty much forced to carry it on. And it, for a couple of years, I did it, and I would be in people's cars on the way back from the gig, still going, yeah, it went well, I reckon. It was a little bit tough at the end, but it's not too bad. And I, I, you'd, uh, keep, you'd keep it up off stage. Because I thought comments. they would think I was a, a liar if I... Yeah, uh, so... Um, <laughs> I remember driving back from Blackpool six hours to keeping the accent up, and I started thinking, I'm not sure this is sustainable, really. Um, Did you ever run into any of those comics, like the comic from the Blackpool car journey? Did you ever see them again and and have to go, oh, by the way... I I was aware that cracks were beginning to appear in the story, yeah. Um, (laughs) And one of the problems was of Rod as well. Rod was one of my counterparts in that group of comedians, and he's kept it going for a lot longer than me, the Welsh (laughs) thing. Like, he... um, I like he's, I'm starting to think he's only got one trick in his... Uh, um, partly, I felt guilty because he and I would do a lot of gigs together and he would always... Uh, whoever went on second would always do less well because the Welsh thing had been done. And I would think, oh, that's a, I shouldn't really have done that because the Welsh thing is really his. But also, just uh, pragmatically, it was starting to get difficult because I would do a Radio 4 interview or because I had these, this other career writing books and... Increasingly, I was appearing in situations where I couldn't go into character because I was just doing something like this, for example. So there came a point where I thought, I can't... It's not a situation like Al Murray where he could potentially do that character forever. I'm not going to be able to put on an accent for the rest of my life. Plus, I was aware that if I could free myself from it, I would be better as a stand-up because I would just, give, I would just have more... Uh, I'd be more relaxed. Say. So mm. I definitely felt better as a result of having dropped it. But I do miss it as a sales pitch because there's no doubt it was really useful. As uh, The time when I was... Oh, you're that Welsh guy. Was I've never had a hook quite as noticeable as that since then. Um, almost every interview you've done, I'm sure, someone has said, "What's your advice for new comics?" And the advice that everyone gives, and I've seen you give on, you know, on, on uh, interviews before, is to just keep gigging. I think that's the that's the sort of that's a go-to thing that everyone agrees yeah. with. Um, but apart from that, apart from that, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering what's the what's the second piece of advice you'd give? I just want to get slightly as a last thing underneath the skin of. Maybe what something that you wish you'd done sooner or that you wish you'd done differently? I think that a lot of people now come through as new comics and uh, feel the pressure to do the sort of stuff they see other people doing because there's much more of an archive of stand-up now than there was ten years ago. And stand-up's on the TV the whole time. There are a lot of people to compare yourself with, as we've said. So I, I think I'd say always try and do something that you you yourself believe is funny rather than something that you think the market requires. I, I see quite a lot of up-and-coming comics that, as I've said earlier in this interview, that are really accomplished, they've got great uh, skills, they've got observations, they've got the whole package, but there's just a sense, a lingering sense that they're doing what they think comedians do rather than what they think is funny. Whereas, well, I, to give one example, he's just left, but Tim Key, who's a good friend of mine, is is somebody who has always done purely what he intended to do without any concessions to the uh, kind of prevailing fashion in comedy. And for a number of years, people thought he was just an idiot. Um, <laughs> I, I think if you're doing something which is funny, 
uh, and has integrity, it'll eventually be recognised. Even it t- And a lot of the comedians that I admire most are people who are doing stuff that, for a long time, people just didn't like it. Paul Foote, Tim Key, uh, Sam Simmons. T- to a lesser extent, Doherty was always quite successful, but there are a lot of comedians I think are brilliant who they've had to struggle through that bar, uh, that, that wall of people thinking, this is a bit weird for me. Eventually, if it's funny, it will find its audience. So I think my advice to someone starting out would be, yeah, pursue what you think is funny, not what you think the expectation is. Because in the end, there's an awful lot of people doing generic stand-up well, but unexcitingly. But there's only a handful of people doing something that actually makes you think, wow, that's brilliant. And those are normally people who started out thinking, nearly everyone will hate this, but a few people will love it. That's what you should probably try and aim for. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mr Mark Watson. <laughs> So that was Mark. Thank you very much uh, to Mark for coming on and for being so candid. I've been really looking forward to that interview and uh, I really think he he gave uh, the most of himself and uh, I felt like we got some very uh, honest answers. He was, if you were there, you'll remember, he was twizzling his beard furiously, which certainly to me was some sort of a tell. That, uh, that he was uh, he was being very very open. So thank you, Mark. Thank you to you for listening. Um, thank you very much to uh, now. Who else do I need to thank? Of course, uh, Olivia Phipps for her occasional podmin. No, I haven't asked her to do any recently, but it's nice to remind you all of her contribution uh, of previous episodes. So thank you to Nathan Wood who co-produces this show, and uh, thank you to Mark Dawson who recently did some uh, some photographs for me at the Nina Conti podcast, which I'll be using on the new website. I'll tell you all about that when we're going to launch it. Next week, uh, live from the Tallinn Comedy Festival, we've got Mitch Ben, that was recorded a couple of weeks ago, uh, and then we've got an extra special, very, very exciting guest uh, coming up who's coming around to my flat in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, hashtag get me Jackie Chan. I've had an amazing opener, I believe. I mean, yesterday I sent an email to Jackie via Jackie's manager, via an artist who's recently worked with Jackie, via a listener who knows the artist. This is exactly how this shit should work, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so I have emailed something which may or may not be read by Jackie or read to Jackie or translated for Jackie. Um, so one of you I know on the, on the podcast uh, Facebook page did point out that they wondered how good my Mandarin was, seeing as Jackie's English is not as good as people suspect. I thought he was fluent in English, or at least fluent in you know, decent English, or maybe maybe good good at English. Maybe I'll get Des Bishop to translate for us. So, uh, hashtag get me Jackie Chan. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, let's not forget the Comedians Comedian podcast is not a substitute for actually doing some of your own writing. Get to it. I'll speak to you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.